Hello folks, g'day. Um, to everyone out there in the live land, I'm your host, Stefan Angelini, and I'm here hosting an ASX Stock Tips education event. Um, I'm also the host, of, the host of the Investor Types podcast, and here we are for a great event, talking um, to an expert manager in the small cap and mid cap space. Um, we're talking to Nick Greenwood from Carrara Asset Management. Um, most importantly today, guys, it's all about education, educating yourself and getting yourself upskilled if you are thinking about trading shares, obviously trade responsible. Um, anything you hear in this um, in this conversation today will just be general in nature, so don't please don't consider it as personal advice. If you are considering taking on any personal advice, please go and speak to a licensed professional. All right, good day, everyone. Um, welcome to the stream. Um, luckily, we've got here today, so Nick Greenwood from Carrara. Um, we've got Renee Dacchino from um, Ironbark Asset Management, responsible for the distribution of Carrara and many other funds, um, and also Daniel McDonald, who runs McDonald Legal, but also um, was a creator of the Facebook group. So, guys, thanks a lot for joining us, everyone. G'day. Great to see you. Um, look, we're here to talk about uh, small caps, obviously, um, get some education on investing. Uh, Renee, you've been in the investing game for a long time. Um, I thought you'd be the best person to introduce uh, Nick and even the fund. So, if you wouldn't mind. Thanks, Stefan, and, and, and thanks, Daniel. Uh, yes, so I'd like to take the opportunity to introduce um, one of our portfolio managers from Carrara Capital, Nick Greenway. Uh, Nick Greenway joined Carrara as an investment manager in May 2010. He has over 20 years investment market experience and prior to joining Carrara Capital, Nick worked for more than eight years as a portfolio manager and an analyst focusing on listed Australian small companies. Most recently, um, prior to Carrara Capital, he worked with a firm called Patriot Asset Management, where he was also managing director and co-founder. Prior to joining Patriot, Nick worked as an investment banker with UBS Swarbrick Corporate Finance and Merrill Lynch, where he held the position of vice president in investment banking. So as you can uh, tell by uh, the bio that I just read out to you all, Nick um, has a wealth of experience and I'm sure that you'll enjoy our session today. Amazing. Well, Nick, um, thanks for joining us. You've obviously got a wealth of experience and um, you're in the most exciting space um, in the stock market, but obviously also the most volatile, and we'll call it the most emotional, um, with the roller coasters that go up and down. If you look at the um, the ups and downs of, say, the, some of the buy now, pay laters, where um, in March they were skyrocketing and then they fell. If you look at Afterpay, went from $40 down to $8 and then back up to $90. Um, and it just goes to show some, some periods of market volatility that if you don't, I guess back up your your buys and what you're buying with with research. It's easy to get emotional and to run away. Um, tell me a bit about your experience with market volatility and the the approach you take when we're in such volatile markets like we're seeing now. Thanks, Stefan, and thanks, Renee, for the introduction. Yeah, I think um, uh, the, the volatility through this year has been been really interesting, and um, I think it really represents the culmination of a market, um, particularly in, in in small caps and micro caps that are has been heavily driven by momentum um, and the share price string swings can be a lot more volatile because the liquidity in those stocks is so much less than say, you know, the, the top 20 or top 50. Um, I think really, the, you know, the key is um, in this sort of market, we do have these wild swings is to have a have an anchor or you have to have a, a reference point or a valuation for your stocks and to have the buy price and the sell price. Otherwise, 
if you're just moving with momentum, it's it's very dangerous, and you know you, you could have been holding after pay at thirty bucks, and um, it takes a lot of fortitude or, or or confidence in your valuation anchor to hang on to it when it's sinking like a stone down to eight, you know, to eight dollars. And um, I, I suppose that, um, momentum isn't really our investment investing style. We tend to be more of a fundamental investor and, and rely on you know um, some more traditional earnings um, and, and dividend. Um, type aspects in, in coming up with our valuations. And so um, it's been tough for a, a value or, or a more value orientated manager for us in a momentum driven market. Um, but I think, yeah, either way, whichever style, you know, you follow and, and, and either are valid at various times, you really have to know what your, your, your buy and sell prices are. Otherwise, you're just moving with the, with the crowd. Yeah, definitely. Now, growth is, growth momentum has certainly been shooting the lights out. Hopefully, value is making a comeback for sure. Um, I might just introduce you to Daniel McDonald. So Daniel was um, is the creator of the Facebook group. Um, and as I said before, so runs a, runs a law firm out of Melbourne. Um, Daniel, any questions you've got for Nick before we kick off the presentation? Yeah, I'm just interested to know. Crara's been around since 2009, I embark. Just wondering um, how it all came into existence. Um, Carrara was actually founded um, by three gentlemen, um, the managing director, David Slack, who was a, a founder actually of Portfolio Partners um, going back into the, into the 90s, which was sold to, to Norwich. And then uh, two former colleagues of his um, from when um, they worked at Invesco, Rowan Walsh and Luke Sinclair, um, formed the company. Gotcha. Right. And also, how these things come <laughs> within the company, there's a few different focuses. Um, Nick Greenway obviously leads the small companies fund. Um, so, Nick, what we might do is I might get into the presentation. Um, for anyone out, that's out there that is watching, um, and if you do have questions for us, please um, feel free to leave a question. It will pop up for us, um, and then we can ask Nick um, to go from there. Other than that, Nick, um, you're going to see this presentation pop up on your screen. Uh, over to you. Let me know where you want to go, Nick, and... Talk to the talk to the slides if you can. Okay. Well, just on slide three, just gives a, a quick overview of um, our investment objective and essentially what we're trying to achieve. Um, our, our benchmark is the Small Ordinaries Accumulation Index, um, and we're trying to achieve that over a, a rolling four-year period. Um, the size of the fund we manage is, or, or total funds we manage in this strategy are about eight hundred million dollars. Um, in terms of what we invest in, we don't really go down into the, the real, um, really small end of the micro cap or the nano cap market. So. We don't hold any companies with market caps of less than 70 million. Um, well, that's actually a, a hard rule. And in reality, we don't own many that are, um, have a market cap of less than less than 200. Um, so our real sweet spot is, is companies that have market caps from, from 200 up until um, those companies really move into the, the, the ASX 100. Um, and by that stage, you're looking at companies with market caps of over, over $2 billion and, and thereabouts. Um, we can hold... 15% of our fund in those cap in those companies that move out of the, the small cap index up into the um, up into the top 100. Um, we currently hold about about 10% of the funding in those sort of companies. One of our main ones actually has been a gold company called Saracen Minerals, which we've held for a long time and done really well out of. And you probably would have seen yesterday that they announced a merge with Northern Star to create the um, the second largest gold company um, uh, in Australia behind Newcrest, and actually has much better growth prospects than uh, the Newcrest. And, that's been well received by the market, which is good. Um, turning to slide four, um, our fundamental philosophy is to buy companies that are underappreciated or um, around mispriced. And we, we have a, a quality focus. So um, we, we try and invest in what we refer to high quality companies that preferably have sustained earnings or sustainable earnings um, or a materially undervalued asset position. And 
this sort of um, focused on focus on earnings really goes to that fundamentals or focus on fundamentals I was referring to before. Um, and I, I suppose in this sort of market environment where you have had a lot of non-profit generating companies, um, you know, really flying, particularly in the tech, the tech space and so forth, um, it has made it a, a difficult market for us to invest in because we do have a focus on, on profitability. What we do though is have some scope to invest in non-profit generating companies and that's um, principally of advantage in the resources part of the market. We have a lot of companies that are, are say, developing a, a mine or a project and they're, they're pre-earnings or pre-revenue and um, um, often you can do very, very well out of those companies and we have. So we do have the ability to invest in companies that are non-profit generators. Um, at the moment, that's well, well below less than 10% um, uh, of, um, um, of the fund. Um, and obviously in the tech space, you know, you've had companies like, you know, Afterpay and Zip and, um, you know, most of the buy now pay laters are, are not profitable. Um, we have had some exposure to them over the years. We did own Afterpay when it was in our, um, in our benchmark and made some pretty good money out of it. Um, I think we sold out at 25 or $26 and thought we were, you know, legends and it was fully priced. Um, and obviously uh, it, it ran up into the 30s and then obviously went on the journey we've described, you know, back down to eight and, um, and then, then up obviously into the, uh, into the 90, 90 level. Um, we sort of invest with a, a longer term horizon. So we're not um, asset, we're not, we're not traders. Um, you know, essentially we'll buy stocks with a, with a view to holding them for, um, for three to five years. Um, that's sort of the time frame we look at um, when, we, when we're making our investment decisions. So we're really trying to find those underappreciated medium term growth stories not trying to find you know, the, the next stock that's, you know, we think is going to fly up in the, in the next week or so. Um, in terms of our approach, it's really based around you know, discipline. We're bottom-up stock pickers, but I think a, a key point um, of, of difference for us compared to some other managers, we, we do take a lot of account of the, um, of the broader macro environment with a top-down overlay, um, and we sort of spend a lot of time understanding you know, companies and industries and particularly where those companies sit within an industry and what the challenges and threats um, are. Um, and fundamentally, we're not we're not a deep value manager, albeit we do have a value orientation. We're not looking to buy um, you know stocks that are impaired or in structural decline. So we're not like an Alan Gray type manager um, who will buy those those really bombed out stories and, and wait for the um or, or, or hope for the you know the big turnaround. Once again, that's a valid investment style, and um, and they're a very successful manager and done really well. That's just not um not our investment style. Probably the next point in terms of um, the presentation, if we, if we turn to, to slide six, how we're sort of seeing the market overall at the moment and, and some of our positioning. Um, at the moment, I think that the market is, is, is quite expensive, um, particularly the small industrials part of the market and um, a lot of the, you know, the tech names and um, um, you know, software names and um, you know, buy now, pay later sort of stocks are, are looking pretty, pretty fully priced. Um, the market has been massively supported by stimulus, um, you know, really since the GFC. You've only got to look at what the central banks around the world have done in terms of you know, printing money, expanding their balance sheets. And now that's really being augmented by government fiscal policy. Um, You've obviously seen you know, massive um, direct transfer payments you know, in Australia with JobKeeper and um, JobSeeker and the like. And now with the budget last night, um, albeit you know, that there's a transfer or, or less reliance now on, on direct handouts from the government to more tax incentives in terms of giving businesses tax breaks and um, and personal income tax rather than direct handouts. Um, you know, the, the markets, I think, still will be supported for quite some time by the um, by the actions of the government as well as the, um, the, the central banks. So how we see things and how we're playing it in terms of our key um, um, portfolio thematics, 
Um, there's obviously been a massive acceleration, digital transformation driven by you know, COVID and um, you know, working from home type, type concepts, um, increasing data usage, usage in cloud computing um, and e-commerce. So in that sort of in data or digital infrastructure space, we've owned companies like NextDC um, and Vocus in terms of communications infrastructure. Um, we've also had Opticom and, and Unity Wireless um, more in the um, more focused but the household um, fiber data consumption um, sort of um, thematic um, as more people are working from home. Um, essentially, those companies are competing with the um, the NBN um, in, in rolling out infrastructure and long life assets. And there's actually a merger that's going through at the moment of those two companies. We're pretty positive on that part of the market. Um, infrastructure expenditure is really going to be a linchpin also of the domestic economic recovery into FY22. Um, um, obviously, the, the government, the um, at the federal level, there's over $100 billion of projects that will start coming start coming through. That There is a bit of a lag, but we think companies such as Seven Group over the medium term will be um, a very a very strong beneficiary there. Um, mining services is actually a really interesting part of the market. It's really lagged um, the, the a relatively bullish resources market. So obviously the gold stocks have been flying, the iron ore stocks have been flying, um, but a lot of the um, the mining services companies have, have really lagged that. We think there's some pretty good value down that part of the market. Um, so a couple of companies we own there. One is Mineral Resources, which is also a, um, an iron ore producer, and um, it's got some tier one lithium assets as well, um, and um, also uh, NRW, which we think is um, is, is undervalued. Um, emerging inflationary pressures. Um, <clears throat> key sort of thematic there is our exposure to, to precious metals, primarily gold. Um, I think at the moment um, you haven't seen the inflation really manifest um, in terms of consumer prices. It's been more in asset prices. Um, and we may see some um, you know, moderate deflationary forces going forward, but I think the actions of central banks and governments pretty much universally around the world to, to borrow and spend, um, um, you know, as far as the eye can see, um, will mean that um, inflation will, will emerge in the medium term. And so um, we've got some good exposure there through some gold stocks such as Saracen, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Then just lastly, in terms of a couple of other key themes we're seeing, or where we have exposures to um, Australia is, I think, increasingly playing to its natural advantages um, and uh, demand for high-quality food coming out of Asia. Um, so some of the exposures we have there at the moment are Elders um, and um, and Costa, and then East Coast um, energy um, or gas prices in particular. Um, we think uh, the outlook there looks pretty positive over the medium term. So we have um, exposures to to Cinex and Cooper, which is going through some teething issues at the moment with the um, commissioning of the Orbos gas plant. Um, down here in Victoria, but we think those will be resolved in the medium term. That stock looks pretty good value on a two to three year year. Uh, Nick, there seems to be a heap of mergers and acquisitions popping through around the market, as you said, with um, uh, with Northern Star um, merging in the gold space. Are you seeing in, in current markets like we are seeing uh, where the gold price is quite high, do you see a lot of mergers and acquisitions coming about in, in those markets? Yeah, great question. Yeah, we do. Um, uh, yeah, in, in the Australian um, you know, mid-caps um, and small um, gold space, I think there is the, the likelihood you may see, you know, another couple of deals over, you know, the next six to 12 months. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot of um, synergies often to be um, to be reached where you have, you know, assets that are, um, are either, you know, ore or mule constrained in, in, in various respects. And that was really one of the key drivers behind the, the Saracen Northern Star deal. So, um yeah, I, I think um, yeah, it is an area that's ripe for expansion, and or sorry, ripe for M and A. Um, so yeah, we we do have some ideas there. 
And you spoke a little bit before about, um, I guess, uh, so NextDC, work from home, people obviously using more internet. Um, so you see NextDC, is NextDC, is that a property and infrastructure play or is NextDC more of an internet play, an IT play? It's really both. It's um, it, it's 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 infrastructure, but infrastructure that's that's really exposed to um, um, you know, to technology and increasing, you know, obviously, you know, cloud cloud computing and, and data usage. Um, so, in terms of you know, going back to say ten to fifteen years, airports were, you know, regarded as the the high growth infrastructure player. Well, um, you know, I think now you can probably start looking at data centres as, as almost as a, as, a, as a replacement in some respects for you know, airport infrastructure because um, obviously people will be travelling less. I don't. I think it's going to take quite some time for um, um, you know travel to pick back up to levels it was say in 2019. I mean, I know with our business that you know we can achieve an enormous amount now over the internet. You know, with Zooms, um, with Zoom type calls and you know WebEx and Teams and so forth. Um, I've got a conference on today that's actually up at um, up at Noosa, um, and I'm just <laughs> dialing into the presentations, and it's like I'm there. It's it's, it's absolutely fabulous. So, and our whole yeah. team can dial in. We don't have to go. So I think yeah, the, the data centres are a massive beneficiary of um, you know of this of this um, dynamic, and it, I don't think it's going to go back to how it was. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm with you there. And um, we've had some questions around um, SHV and, and MXI. I'm not sure if you're aware of those companies at all, um, SHV Select Harvest Limited, um, considering someone's saying there that they might be undervalued with your, with your focus on agriculture. Um, yeah, sure um, they've obviously just um, done an acquisition last week um, of some more almond orchards um, um, close to where their existing orchards are. Um, I think it is a, it is a pretty um, interesting you know, medium-term play. Obviously, the almond price has been depressed. Um, mm. But I think yeah, the acquisition makes sense, and I, you would expect that the stock should perform reasonably well, particularly if the almond price can can recover. Um, Maxi MXI, I think, is Maxi Trans. I think yeah, I haven't looked at that one for quite some time. It's it's relatively small, so I don't really have a view on that one. No, fair enough. Yeah, it's only very small cap. Um, really great questions just come through um, from one of the members on Facebook. Uh, so with the new number of traders that are entering the market since March and the influx of company stock prices rising since that time. Um, do you think that that prices are a little bit inflated um, previous to the fundamental analysis? Um, and how does this sort of change your opinion given the number of traders that have now come into the market, especially in the small cap space? Yeah, it's a fascinating dynamic. Um, and I think to answer the, the question generally, yes, I think you know, a lot of valuations are um, um, are overblown. Um, uh, and it, it is a momentum-driven market. And, yeah, with a lot of um, you know, retail investors coming in, um, and you can see from the volumes going through on Comsec and the other you know retail yeah. platforms, it's a, it is a you know a, a fairly um, um, significant part of the market. Um, but yeah, I think that, that's just an area that you know makes us a little bit cautious. Um, but we need to also recognise that you know the, the prices can be driven by um, you know retail investors as much as they can institutional investors. So it's just an extra dynamic that we have to take into account and, and be um, you know, be mindful of. Definitely. Daniel, mate, oh. any questions? Oh, yeah, well, I do, but I think, are we still continuing? We've got some more of uh, this presentation to go through, or are we finished yeah. on the portfolio? Still got, still got pres plenty of presentation to go through. Nick, <laughs> you tell me where you want to go to next, mate. Um, probably the, um, in terms of just the performance prospects um, for, for our fund, I think just sort of going, going forward, the way we're structured, given our... Um, 
um, our sort of focus on valuation. We've got what we describe as a bit of a barbell structure. And I think given how fragile, you know, markets potentially are, you know, recognising that a lot of this is being driven by, you know, stimulus, government, central bank, um, and then obviously, you know, momentum, you've mentioned that, that the retail investor factor coming in as well. Um, when you look at those factors compared to where the underlying economies are performing, um, I think people just need to be mindful, um, you know, of the potential fragility around the market. And um, that's why we're structured at the moment with this barbell structure where we've got some, um, you know, defensive and growth, you know, names in our portfolio. Um, so I'm not saying that, you know, the market is necessarily going to you know, fall over tomorrow, but I think just given where valuation levels are, um, in the small industrial space, the PE is north of 20, um, which is at an all-time high. It's above a two-standard deviation level. Um, I think it's similar for the um, um, earnings multiples apply to the, the large-cap industrials as well when you exclude the banks. Um, so I think you know, it's just a, a time to be to be cautious. Um, yeah, as I said, we've, we saw in March what can happen um, yeah, when um, if, if the market does, does get a shock. Um, um, so I think that that sort of explains how we're positioned. Um, yeah, that's probably the, you know, probably on that, on slide seven, it's really that, that the last sub-bullet point there that, you know, we're mindful that a predominant factor driving the markets has been, you know, negative real interest rates, um, massive liquidity, and, um, and also asset allocations towards passive strategies has helped as well. So the index funds have become a, a bigger part of the market as well. Mm -hmm. um, so the risks on slide eight, uh, I won't labour these too much. They're probably well known to, to, to most people, um, you know, following the markets. But obviously, COVID's, you know, out there in the US. It's, it's still an issue. I think 34 states in the US have recorded higher levels um, this month versus um, a month ago. Um, and um, that, that's a potential, you know, threat to the, the US, you know, US, US economy and, and the reopening um, or, or the shape of the, um, the recovery over there. Um, I've talked about low interest rates, central banks. Geopolitical tensions are also out there and, and, and are building. We've seen... Um, um, obviously, that the rhetoric's amped up um, between the US and uh, and China, particularly over the um, over the coronavirus. Um, so it's something that you know is, is out there. We need to be need to be wary of. Um, at the moment, all this deficit spending, the markets don't seem to be too worried about it at the moment in terms of the US is running um, massive budget and trade deficits. Um, one of Trump's focuses has been trying to um, to reduce the, the trade deficit by doing a you know a better trade deal with with China. Um, now that focus seems to have moved away, to that, up away from that more to COVID, um, I think in the medium term, there is a risk that, you know, if the, um, the US does lose its safe haven status because of these deficits, the US dollar um, in the medium term is, um, you know, is potentially, potentially at, um, you know, at risk um, as well. Um, and the markets could revolt if we, um, if we do see a, a greater focus on those, those budget and trade, um, trade deficits. Um, and then I think the roll-off of stimulus measures now, I think, you know, it's probably less of a risk. I think we've seen the governments are pretty much going all in trying to keep, you know, the economies going. But we do have that disjoint still, um, you know, even with all the stimulus, um, you know, we, we're still going to face a pretty tough um, economic environment here. Um, and then probably the last two, um, uh, Australian house prices, I think, uh, are still vulnerable. We've got a lot of people on, um, you know, on effective holidays in terms of their, their mortgage repayments and so forth. And, um, I think that's the fundamental reason why the government wants to keep um, you know, everyone employed as, as best they can because the knock-on effect um, you know, to house prices and, and, and household wealth would be immense if, um, um, if, if we do have employment fall, just given how highly leveraged the household sector is uh, in Australia. Um, There's just a, a brief snapshot of our performance on slide nine. Um, we've had a, a, a better year this year. Um, as I said, it's been a bit tough 
for us over the last few years, uh, essentially, you know, given our style, we, we have more of a, you know, evaluation um, focus and there has been a very heavily momentum, um, you know, driven market. Um, I think for anyone out there, if you are looking at, at, at other or, or small capital or other managers, um, probably for any investment class, I mean, my personal views, you should really consider people's, you know, 10-year records where people have been through a, you know, a cycle or two. Um, yeah. Um, you know, anyone can really have a hot six months or a 12 months um, and it's easy to get carried away with your, uh, your success over those shorter periods. But, um, you know, particularly for, you know, professional managers, um, you know, personally, I'd, I wouldn't invest with someone that didn't have a, you know, a decent 10-year record. Um, <clears throat> just probably turning to the end of it, um, or, or the last page of the presentation, just some stock stories or some, some ideas that we sort of um, are liking at the moment. I've got, I've got three. Um, and they're all a bit different. So um, hopefully this will, um, um, you know, pique some interest. Um, so the first one of those is, um, is a company, um, Austal, which is a, a value play. Um, it's currently trading on a, a PE of about 13 times, coming down to probably 12 and a half um, for next year. Um, the company's a, well, one of the world's largest um, shipbuilders, in particular in the aluminium shipbuilding space. Um, they have a key exposure to military vessels for the um, the US Navy. They're a primary a prime contractor to the US Navy for um, their LCS um, warships. Um, notwithstanding, it's a contracting business which tend to be you know lower quality. This one has pretty significant IP um, around shipbuilding. Um, it is a low cost producer, um, and I think one of the important thematics driving this one is that. Um, we're seeing, obviously, with heightened geopolitical tensions, um, increasing military spend and government spend more more broadly. Um, last night, the US Navy actually came out and um, and um, enunciated their a, a new um, force structure target, taking their navy up to 500 ships. So it's a, a pretty sizable increase in ships that the navy wants to build over the next few years, and Austal's a key potential beneficiary of that. Um, I think the other key point with this company is. With all the boats they've been building for the US Navy, um, there's more and more of the boats obviously going into the water and there's a big opportunity for them to generate more um, sustainment revenue um, out of uh, the boats, um, of, you know, essentially you know, servicing the boats and maintaining them once they go into the water. And we think that's one of the key things that the markets are underappreciated at the moment. Um, in terms of why the stock's trading at 13 times earnings when the, the small industrials is 2021, 20, essentially the the market's concerned about a particular contract rolling off for the company for the um, the LCS program in, in 2024. Um, and um, we think those concerns are probably overblown, particularly given the, the factor I just mentioned, the US Navy's come out with his plan to, to substantially increase the fleet um, over the next uh, the next 15 to 20 years. And the Navy's actually just granted Austal, given them, um, uh, well, the US government has $50 million to build up a steel shipbuilding facility next to their current aluminium building facility in, in Mobile, Alabama. Um, so we think it's you know reasonable to assume that the government wants to keep that shipbuilding facility going beyond the, the roll-off of the LCS program. Otherwise, they wouldn't have given them uh, $50 million to, to, to build a new facility. It's a, a pretty tough um, economically exposed um, state in, in Alabama. And it, uh, I think Austell's the second largest employer. Um, so it's highly likely that the government slash Navy in the US will want to keep that facility going. Um, and we think they should generate some good levels of work going forward. So um, we think, yeah, the market's concerns are, are overblown. Um, and trading at, at 13 times um, earnings, as I, as I mentioned, and stocks, I think it's got about a 2.5% yield. Um, it's, um, it's, it's a potential candidate for a re-rate over, over time. 
Um, the second one, the second stock uh, I'd like to mention is a bit more of a growthy infrastructure um, play, um, one of the mid-sized telcos, and that's that's Unity Wireless, UWL. Uh, the market cap's about 700. Um, it's going through a merger process, as I mentioned earlier, with um, with Opticom, uh, which has, I think, got a market cap of about 600. So once they're put together, which we think so, um, has a very high chance of occurring, um, it will be a, about a $1.3 billion company um, and makes it pretty significant for small cap investors um, uh, in the part of the market where I operate. But really the key business here is a, is a fibre infrastructure business to, to new or um, greenfield properties, so both apartment and broadacre you know, housing developments. So really the, the company, well, these two companies are trying to compete with the NBN um, and when they merge, they'll be a, a pretty formidable competitor to the NBN in terms of rolling out um, you know, fibre infrastructure to, to new to new premises. So essentially, they're, um, the, 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 the essence is they're much more efficient, faster, more flexible than the NBN Co and can add um, over-the-top services. So if you're building a housing development, you want um, you know, security and so forth incorporated you know, when the development's done or other bells and whistles, they're much more nimble and able to offer all those extra services than the NBN Co is. So um, essentially that's you know, where their competitive advantage lies. Um, we really like the business because they're long-life and they're effectively monopolistic assets like the NBN. Um, and um, you know, we think notwithstanding that the recent things announced um, where the NBN will um, has obviously got some more funding from the government, we think the NBN is more likely to attack the wholesale enterprise market Rather than um, you know the, the the wholesale residential market, which is where um, where Unity and um, and Opticom um, um, operate. So um, yeah, we really like this one taking a you know a, a two to three year view. It's like a an infrastructure um, you know, growth asset, a bit it's not dissimilar to, to the data center thematic as that I mentioned before. Um, and then probably the final one I'd like to mention. This one's a bit more at the um, exciting end of the uh, the spectrum. Um, this is a, a, a medical software company um, that's recently listed uh, about three months ago um, called 4DX. Um, that's the ticker of the company as well. Um, so this is a medical software company that runs effectively. It's a SaaS business model um, with exposure to the healthcare um, market. So you've got a, a, a great business model in that it really is a proper SaaS business model in the healthcare market. Um, um, opportunities are, are typically very, very large. Um, often they involve devices and, and so forth that need to be um, you know, uh, produced or, or drugs that need to be developed. And um, that obviously usually costs a lot of money to go through trials, you know, phase three trials and the like. This one's great because it's actually a software company. And um, essentially what 4DX is um, offering is it's software that's used to measure lung airflows by effectively processing um, a series of X-ray images. So it takes what are existing or what is an existing technology basically an x-ray of the lungs or, or a series of x-rays of the lungs and then processes those um, using its software and then effectively provides um, a dynamic um, as an emotion-based um, um, series or image of the of the lungs and how the lungs are operated and effectively that provides really rich information for um, doctors looking at the performance of the lungs they can much more readily identify um, you know, where the where the issues in, in a person's lungs are so it's um it's a it's a great a great technology and the beauty of it is that it's a very efficient add-on for hospitals because essentially all they do is, is upload the X-ray images that they already have, 
um, and um, up into the cloud and 4DX's software processes those x-rays and then sends back a, a rendered moving image, a four-dimensional image of the lungs. Um, and it's pretty cost-effective too. So um, at the moment, they're looking at uh, basically a cost of $120 for the x-rays and $175 for the test. So it takes the total test of, total cost of 4DX is offering up to about $295 versus um, the, the most common alternative at the moment is a CT scan, um, which involves um, more, more radiation, but also costs a lot more, about $575. So um, it's cost-effective as well provides great information. Um, the company's just got TGA approval in Australia um, um, and are expecting commercial sales next next calendar year. So it's, it's basically, it's, it's, it's pre-commercial revenue. They do have FDA clearance in the US um, and are getting a little bit of revenue over there. They're in the process of building out um, key opinion leaders in the US. They're at six hospitals, some of the majors, such as John Hopkins, Cleveland Clinics. Um, so it's a, a pretty exciting opportunity, um, large addressable market. Um, the founder is a really interesting guy, um, a guy out of Monash University, um, Andreas Flores, who had a, a background in aeronautical engineering. And that was how he uh, developed the software that um, is now you know, essentially being applied to, um, to these images of, um, of, of lungs. Um, so, yeah, really interesting. Um, and also in the medium term, there's scope for new products too. Um, obviously, at the moment, the first one is one that measures um, um, airflow in the lungs. Um, they're working on another one that um, looks at blood flow or monitors blood flow in the lungs as well. So again, another potentially significant um, addressable market. So there's three stocks for you. That, um, a, a range of styles, um, but three we think um, you know, have pretty good medium term prospects. Very, very <laughs> range of styles. <laughs> Couldn't agree with you more there. Um, Getting involved in something like 4DX quite early on, you said it was enlisted like three months ago. Did you get involved yes, in them we, we on IPO? Yes, in the IPO. Um, the particular um, fund I run um, uh, isn't able to take pre-IPO stakes. So some other small cap funds or micro cap, cap funds are able to do that. Um, we're, we were aware of it at the pre-IPO stage, but um, our fund came in at the IPO stage. Um, you get a lot of excitement around IPOs and new listings and everyone wants to get on the CSL at $4 and write it to 300 or the afterpay at, at four at, at 2 and write it to $100. Um, but how tricky is it to pick a good newly listed company? Yeah, great question. Um, I think over my career, it's um, yeah, it, it's not easy. I think in more recent times, um, it has been probably probably easier just given that the market has been momentum-driven. Um, and there has been a lot of excitement around, you know, particularly, you know, the, the buy now, pay layers, and now some of these medical, you know, um, um, companies that are that are coming out, you know, like like 4DX. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's it can change over time. Um, I think what we're seeing now, though, is that a lot of these tech tech based flights and companies that are coming are because of this acceleration of um, the transformation of the economy that's been driven by COVID. Um, there is massive disruption that's coming through from a number of these businesses. So um, I think at the moment, um, you know, the markets are, are, are pretty, the outlook's pretty good for, for technology-related IPOs that are, are disruptive. Um, and, um, you know, I think people are willing to look at, you know, the potential medium-term opportunity um, in valuing these companies rather than, you know, being so concerned about, you know, whether they're going to be making losses for the next one or two years. 
but it's an area where you you, you do need to be careful and and, and pick your winners. <laughs> yeah, definitely couldn't agree more, Daniel. So, buy something Nick, like that. The three stocks you put forward, I noticed they're in sectors of defence, uh, I T T and uh, and and medicine. Um, is that really in line with a with um, Carrara's strategy around dealing with the next sort of two years of, of a potentially COVID universe? Yeah, great question. It's um, well, as I mentioned, part of our process we do take into account you know the top down thematics, and we are um, you know favourably disposed towards those you know those th those things that you just mentioned, Daniel. I think fundamentally though, each of the businesses, um, you know, looking at them from a bottom up standpoint. You can see how their outlook, you know, revenue and earnings will improve, you know, quite quite well over the next two or three years, and that's really the, the key driver. It's more just an outworking that that at the end of the day for us that they're the sectors that, um, you know, they've ended up in. Even in even in the COVID world, they'll probably do quite well. Yeah, exactly. without a vaccine. Yeah, um, one of the uh, the rules of of, um, of uh, Carrara's investments, as I note, was underappreciated, mispriced, and sustainable earnings. Um, well, obviously, everything at the moment is probably uh, underappreciated um, potentially for if um, if a vaccine is made available. What are some of the the sectors that um, the Carrara is kind of looking at in a post-vaccine world? Yeah, it's um, it, it's it's an interesting one. Um, I, you know, I think in a post um, vaccine world, which you know, my personal view is, we probably won't see it until the middle of next year in terms of it being distributed, you know, widely distributed, um, you know, allowing for production times and, and so forth. So um, we're probably looking at more of a late 21, 22 type impact, you know, for that. But I think, um, you know, key sectors that would pick up there, you'd expect, you know, anything, you know, travel related. Um, and then I think really the way we're looking at it from this, our universe of stocks is, um, you know, the potential changes that you would see then would probably be a reopening of the international borders. Um, so anything that, you know, has been exposed to inbound, you know, tourism, um, you know, migration. So that would tend to be suggestive that over that, you know, the year or two following that, anything, your housing, you know, in terms of you know, net migration would, would start to pick up again. Um, and anything inbound touring, tourism related, maybe education with the unity, sorry, university um, sector, you know, in Australia has obviously been hit pretty hard by the, um, you know, the foreign student numbers, you know, falling. So, you know, companies like IDP Education, well, they've got the beauty that they're a global business. They can ship their students around the globe to some extent, but they've got a pretty big exposure to Australia. But I think, you know, if you, if you saw a vaccine and things really start to reopen, it's it, companies like that would be, be pretty well positioned. But I think probably the key the key here is just around this digital disruption. We, we don't see this as being just a, a short-term thing, um, you know, that's been COVID-driven. I think this is a structural change now, you know, that's caused permanent changes in the way, um, you know, business, um, you know, can be done. You know, as I mentioned at the start, that, that's massive for us in our business. We, we, you know, our travel budget, you know, won't be nearly what it was in, you know, 2019, I think, for quite some time. Um, you know, probably barring you know, um, international trips, which we probably don't expect to do for the next couple of years. Yeah, and um, just just on that, before we finish that, so in the in the short the short term, uh, which um, which sectors do you think are going to um, yield kind of inst instantaneous benefits from um, the introduction of a vaccine? 
instantaneous benefits, right? Uh, instant. That's always a, a little bit hard. I'd say probably the travel would be the, the main one. Um, you know, I think where we see value in the market and the sectors where we think could really, you know, really take off over the next couple of years, we're probably quite positive around resources. Um, you know, to, to, to be frank, because I think if we see a vaccine um, and economies recover um, and businesses open up. Um, and the economy goes back to how it was. Um, I think you've seen China probably has been the best example so far that they seem to have got the virus under control better than say you know the Western, you know Western Europe and um, and obviously the US. But China is um, you know seems to be almost back to how it was. Um, and the demand for commodities out of China, you know, the iron ore price and, and so forth, and the, you know the copper price might have been going going quite well. And what you've had is um, over the last couple of years, um, a lot of underinvestment in, in new mines. You know, mines have been high graded, all the easy ore has been taken um, and so forth. Um, and if the demand for commodities really picks up um, without you know, meaningful increases in supply coming on board, um, obviously by definition with demand increasing and supply not pricing for commodities will be, be quite strong. Um, and I think you overlay with that what's happening globally with global monetary policy and what the central banks are doing, um, particularly you know in the US with the Fed you know creating money out of thin air. Um, I think that augurs well, very well for um, global commodity prices. So I think um, the resource, small resources part of the market, um, is is potentially set up to have a move like it did in two thousand and eleven. Um, and um, you know, all commodities could really, really, really take off. That's that's. You know, I think if the your global economy really starts to um, you know, to fire, um, you know, other than technology, which for the reasons I think technology is going to do well, you know, and those disruptors either way. But I think if we do see you know a vaccine and the economies pick up, um, commodities you know could really do um, do fantastically well. Just on that commodities, with that commodities and mineral space, you're obviously very well well versed there. Um, one of the one of the businesses one of our um, members asked about was um, ADN Andromeda Minerals. I'm not sure if you've looked into this company at all, or or how you see that as it from an operational perspective. No, I haven't. Um, I haven't looked at uh, ADN. I'm sorry, I can't uh, can't offer a uh, can't offer a view on it. That's um, good. We throw these things out there. Don't expect you to know yep. everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's been a question around brought brain chip as a small cap. Um, I've never heard of it. I'm not sure if you have. Yeah, it's a, it's a technology, um, another technology company. We haven't um, haven't done uh, too much work. I think it's had a had a massive run. Um, so yeah, I probably probably wouldn't um, wouldn't uh, offer a view uh, at the moment on that one either. Sorry. Yeah, no, clever. Um, that's the answer we want. You can only um, become expert in so many businesses and find the ones you love. And that's why sticking to an investment philosophy, um, I guess, is so important. And that's why I guess a lot of my clients we entrust the funds of ex expert managers. Uh, like yourself, and especially when you've got such a large, a wide-ranging investable universe. How many companies fall into your investable universe in the small micro-cap space? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We, as so we start um, X100, so it's it's it's. I haven't done a recent count in terms of the the potential universe, but it's over a couple of thousand or probably more. But mm -hmm. we end up screening down to a realistic universe that we can invest in, given um, stock liquidity and the number of stocks that we can hold in our portfolio. It acts as an effective constraint on on how many you know you can um, or how what size you can really go 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 down to. So um, and how many you can look at. So we probably follow actively. Or keep on our screens probably about about 200 um, but we really follow closely about 100 in our team of four 
Um, so you know, it ends up, you know, probably you know being around 25, 30 stocks each that we know really, really well, and then a lot of others, um, you know, we know pretty well. Um, but I think to your point that in terms of you know people's portfolios, you know, it's 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 great to have your you know your money that you're happy to to invest with yourself and have you know some um, ideas or you know a, a more speculative. Um, you know, part of your portfolio, but you know, it's obviously good to have a you know a, a, a solid a solid part of your portfolio as well. Um, so I think, um, um, yeah, I think in, w- when the market's flying, it's um, it's probably easy to get carried away sometimes with you know some of the you know the momentum and um, and, and, and exciting stocks. Yep, uh, definitely. Um- and just on that point, I might introduce you, introduce, introduce Renee. Um, Renee takes care of a lot of the distribution for Carrara. Um, Renee, if you wouldn't mind, just for anyone out there who is listening who might want to find out more about Carrara, would you mind just introducing how they might be able to do that? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Stefan. Sure. If uh, anyone out there is wanting some more information, probably the best port of call, I'd direct you to our website, which is www. Uh, at ironbarkam.com um, and there you'll be able to find a link that will take you into Nick's fund specifically and um, and if you're wanting to speak to someone over the phone, there's a phone number or you there's an email address there as well. Beautiful. Um, Daniel, any closing comments, matey? No, just look, thanks, Nick, and thanks, Renee, for, um, for being part of our education series. It's been great to have you here at ASIC Stock Tips Group. Love to have you back um, in a few more months' time and uh, have a bit more further chat about where the market's at. And maybe in a, that'll be a chat in a post-vaccine world. <laughs> yeah, thanks for any, any closing comments for any of our investors out there, a part of the group? Some words of wisdom, perhaps, for any of the traders? Uh, probably yeah for traders. Um, I'm I'm not a, I'm not a trader. I'm a, I'm an, I'm more of an investor. Um, so I, I far from me to be giving traders advice. But um, I think you know, um, if I did, it'd be obviously run your stop losses. You know, with discipline and um, yeah, occasionally uh, take some profits. <laughs> and with uh, Nick, um, I'm an investor as well. And at ASX Stock Tip Groups, look, we love to promote rockets. Um, everyone wants a rocket or two in their portfolio, but also just remember, um, invest with, with diligence, do your own research. Uh, thanks for listening today. But um, if you are thinking of um, investing into anything that's been mentioned, make sure you do consider um, getting some uh, professional advice. In saying that, everyone, uh, that's enough from us today. Thanks a lot for all your questions and for everyone listening out. Um, you can get access to this video on the Investor Types YouTube channel. Um, Daniel, thanks again for starting the group. It's been great. Nick Greenway, very much Big thanks for joining us. And Renee, thanks a lot for um, setting this all up. So appreciate it. I'll speak to you all soon. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Investor Types podcast. What I want to remind you is that everything you heard in this podcast is general advice only. Please don't consider it as personal advice. If you do want to consider it as being personal advice, please go and speak to your licensed financial planner. Everything here is just informational purposes only. Take it as you will. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again for tuning in. See you soon.